You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Welcome to the Collegian Weekend Review. Here are your hosts, Maddie Welsh and Lauren Scott. Welcome back to the Collegian Weekend Review, where we give you an inside look into Michigan's oldest college newspaper. We're your hosts, Maddie Welsh and Lauren Scott. And today we'll be talking to Jillian Parks about a story she wrote about a play being produced in New York City about Hillsdale College. Then we will talk to Nathan Stanish about his opinion on the Barbie movie and how he thinks Barbie is for men, too. Then we'll have guest host Logan Washburn talk with Micah Hart about the Republican presidential debate. But first, Lauren and I will be talking about some of the top stories and some of the most interesting stories in the Collegian this week. We had some pretty good ones. It's, it's a good looking, good looking Collegian, especially for the second one of the year. It's yeah. often a pretty tough one. And the first full issue of yeah, the year. Absolutely. But it's looking good. A lot of good stuff. One thing that's super interesting is the top story on the front page is about faculty responding to how to teach with the presence of AI. Um, it's sort of a challenging thing. Uh, yeah, that was something interesting whenever professors handed out their syllabi this year. Um, there was a new section that addressed the issue, if you will say, of AI. And um, something that I, I guess had never really thought about is that like, oh, I, I always thought that like, you know, things like chat GPT were okay if you weren't like plagiarizing using it. Um, but they made a point saying like, you just shouldn't, or a lot of professors said on their um, on their syllabus, you shouldn't use it at all because uh, part of a good education is like brainstorming yourself and doing the research yourself. And chat GPT in particular kind of does all the work for you. So then you're not being challenged. Yeah, the, the way that it sort of shakes out is that in the English department, they wrote up this policy and that is standard across the English department. A lot of the history department is adopting it. Um, and then outside of that, other departments are just sort of using that as they see fit. But the policy that the English department wrote made a point to say that students should be wrestling with texts and they should be doing their own outline, doing their own brainstorming. So AI is not a part of that. I actually had uh, one of my history professors say AI is like marijuana. Stay away from it. That's so true. I was in that class, too, because we're in the same classes. We are in the same classes. It's pretty fun, I guess. <laughs> Another story that we had this week that was pretty interesting is about the College Broadcasters Incorporated and how they recently named some finalists for their awards. Yeah, that's pretty exciting, especially exciting because one of the things nominated for an award was a documentary about a Hillsdale graduate and a pretty good code breaker. Um, and Maddie and I actually helped with the making of that documentary. We sure did. And then I want to say that Radio Free Hillsdale is nominated in six categories. I believe so. Yes, yeah, six half things were them, nominated. Half of them um lauren smith is a finalist in so yeah that is awesome three out of the six yeah lauren smith is a junior junior she's mm -hmm. a junior um so she's been at hillsdale for two years so she's going into her third year so i'd say she's doing pretty good absolutely another thing we got going on is homecoming in a few weeks and sab released the theme Ooh, the theme is ancient olympics now there has to be some sort of chariot race I think so, too. Yeah. If there's not, theme wasted. Absolutely. Opportunity wasted. 
And there's not much more to say than that. I think probably the last thing we'll talk about is a story that we had in your section, the city news section, about a new bakery opening up in downtown Hillsdale. Oh, so true. Who wrote that story? I don't know. Some girl. It was me. Maybe like Um, our senior editor? Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Um, But... Super exciting. Yeah, because we don't really have a bakery in Hillsdale. We don't. I talked to Mayor Adam Stockford, and he said that we haven't had one in more than a generation. So it's been a good amount of time. Kudos to Ethan's Donut Factory that will be here by the end of the year. Yeah, that's what they're saying. It's owned by a group of five um, local businessmen, one of whom is Wayne Babcock, who works for the college. He's the house director for Alpha Tau Omega. Um, and he's sort of leading the project. The donut shop, Ethan's Donut Factory, is named after his son, Ethan, which is super sweet. No pun intended. Anyway, super exciting that we have this new business coming into downtown. Couldn't agree more. All right. Well, that's all from us. Next, we'll be hearing from our guests. This is the Collegian Week in Review. This is Maddie, and I'm here with Jillian Parks, the culture editor of The Collegian. Today, we have a super fascinating story to talk about. It's crazy town. It's crazy town. The gist of this story is that there is a gentleman from, where is he from, New York? Well, he's originally from Midland, Michigan, Oh, but he does live in New York currently. Yes, and what's his latest project? So, it's an installment in a trilogy that he has written or is currently writing. I think it's in the works, but this is one of the pieces. And the play is called Hillsdale. And it is set in an abandoned fraternity house in Hillsdale, Michigan. Um, And it's basically the plot of Uncle Vanya, if anybody is uh, familiar with that. The plot is not the most interesting part of the story, though. The most interesting part of the story is that he wrote a play essentially about Hillsdale. What's his ethos to be writing about Hillsdale? So that is a good question and one that I don't have a great answer for. Um, He did go to Hillsdale frat parties in his time as a student at Northwood University, and he had a friend who came to Hillsdale. Apparently, his friend, this isn't included in the article, but his friend was in a fraternity whose chapter was disbanded while he was here, and I guess that was the exigence for his, his big project to write about Hillsdale conservative crazies. So what sort of the plot of this play takes place in an abandoned frat house? What happens? So it's the plot of Uncle Vanya, which basically what happens is, well, I'll tell the Hillsdale story version of it. But there's two frat brothers, former, because they're old now, working and living in a suburb of Detroit. Because he, I don't know if he doesn't know or something, but like they often reference their work in reference to Detroit. So I don't know if they just commute a lot. It doesn't really matter. Um, But they are working-class gentlemen waiting on the return of the president of their fraternity. Well, the former president of their fraternity. And he comes and he's like, hey, guys. And he brings with him two ladies who both of the men respectively had affairs with when they were young, some of them more involved affairs than others. And then the president eventually somewhere along the way is like, this house is really run down and terrible. We better sell it and get a lake house. And then there's a big fight, a sword fight that ensues after that because this is their home. And he's so removed from the world of real trouble that he just thinks that they can just sell this home. But it's not that easy because it would take a lot of work. And he doesn't know anything about work. Um, And it's basically an examination of fraternity culture, I guess, but also like what... Um, the playwright, his name is Roman, 
sees as like an exploration in what a conservative is and like an attempt to humanize them without empathizing with them if that makes sense. Who is the playwright? What do you know about him? I know a little bit about him. I had an interview with him. He was really nice. Um, his name is Roman D'Ambrosio, I think. That's how it's spelled. I never asked him to say his last name, but um, D'Ambrosio is what it says. Um, he, like I said, grew up in Midland, Michigan, went to Northwood University, and is now in playwriting school in New York City. Um, he has written a lot of plays. This is not his only one. He wrote one about Hillsdale sorority girls called Homemade Dynamite, which he did not send to me because I informed him that I was a Hillsdale sorority girl. So maybe there's a conflict of interest there. What I would say is that he grew up with more conservative people in his life and then went to New York and didn't see any of those people anymore and didn't see plays about those people and didn't really like know what had happened to them. And so he felt it was his duty to start writing about them and putting them in shows because in his words, conservatives are perfect theater characters. They're so dramatic. I read in the story that he wouldn't really say whether the purpose of this play was to uplift conservatives or to sort of disparage them. Tell me more about that. Well, his purpose is definitely not to uplift, nor is it to disparage. He's pretty clear that he is interested only in presenting them. He wants to present them as, quote, like real people rather than as, like, caricatures. If he did that successfully, is up to the audience. I believe New Yorkers tended to think so. But if you're coming from a place of already having assumptions about conservatives, it can be pretty difficult to present an accurate view of them, which was um, a problem that Matzos had which, with the play when I shared it with him, and he was another source on the story, which was an interesting angle. Tell me more about what Professor Matzos thought. Professor Matzos is the head of the theater department, and I interviewed him simply because... Roman had said that he wanted Hillsdale to do this play one day. And I was like, hmm, interesting thought. And so I sent it over to... Well, tell me a little bit more about why that's an interesting thought. Well, the play is R-rated. And the first page of the script says, like, content warning, graphic. And it's, like, all this graphic stuff. And if you read the play, it's like, whoa, children, don't don't pick this up off your mom's shelf. But I sent it to Dr. Mazos, and I was like, please, let me know what you think. And then he called me in for an interview. And we talked for, like, 30-ish minutes, maybe more. And he was just like, Hillsdale will never perform this because it's like not appropriate and we do not put things like this on stage. Um, but another angle of what I found out from him was that Mr. Dr. Matzos was a playwright. He wrote plays. He lived in New York and he worked just fine. Like he didn't need an entry point or an access point. And there, there were conservatives in New York when he was there. Maybe they've since all vanished, but the odds of that are looking pretty slim. So his point was he's a conservative and he did fine. Yes. <laughs> Matzos, that is. Mm-hmm. Well, is there anything else that really stuck out to you about this play and the experience of writing about it? Um, I think one thing he hit upon that I wasn't really able to include in the story because it wasn't relevant particularly was just his thoughts about growing up in rural Michigan. And, like, the play doesn't explore this at all, so I don't really know where it came up. But he just talks about how, like, sometimes being in, like, wide open spaces with, like, big open sky and all these trees and like nature and you're driving past fields can actually feel like even more oppressive because everybody knows who you are and like there's no way you can run away and like there's a safety and anonymity that you have when you're in a big city that he's experiencing now that he lives in New York and he likes it a lot but he also I don't know I think part of his interest in Hillsdale is the way that like you can be in this like quote-unquote free space and still feel not free um, which is not necessarily my experience, but I have experienced moments where I'm like, wait, this is like a really small town, you know, even though it is like 
who's to say where the town limits are? Like, how do I know when I'm in Hillsdale, when I'm in Jackson, when I'm not? Like, if I, if there weren't signs, I wouldn't know. So I thought that was a pretty interesting impetus for him to write a play about this. I don't know if the play necessarily talks about that at all, but it's still an interesting thought. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Jillian. Anytime, girl. Radio Free Hillsdale's The Collegian Week in Review continues. This is Lauren, and I'm here with Nathan Stanish, the ad manager at the Hillsdale Collegian. And this week, he wrote an opinion piece titled, Barbie is for Men Too. So first, Nathan, would you mind explaining the live-action Barbie movie that came out this summer for our listeners who have not seen the movie so they can better understand your argument? Yeah, no, that's a great question because I think even for many people who actually watched the Barbie movie, it wasn't very clear what they were watching. One of the immediate movies that comes to mind as a comparison is actually the Lego movie, which came out several years ago, that also tries to translate a toy into a live-action sort of production and mix the two where there's like a path from the the toy world to the real world. And it gets confusing there too. The Barbie movie is more of an adult-oriented version of that story, where instead of themes of like parenting and the relationship between creativity and structure, this movie seems to be focused more on the struggles that women face and using Barbie as a metaphor, but also kind of as a representation of what women face in the real world and an exaggerated idea of what women and men face through expectations that society places on them. So how do we see that in the live action Barbie movie? So I think one of the one of the very simple ways that the movie kind of helps walk you through this representation is by having two separate worlds. Is that you have Barbie land where the Barbies exist as this sort of stereotypical view of a happy, beautiful life run entirely by the Barbies. And then you have the real world, which is also a little bit exaggerated, but intended to be more similar to how we live our lives with more regular relationships between people. So from your perspective, what is the message of the Barbie movie and how have people kind of had misconceptions about this message? That is the really million dollar question for anybody who watches the Barbie movie. One of the ways that I was able to better decipher the message is to have some familiarity with the director, Greta Gerwig. She has also had two uh, very successful movies that were similar in that they were also talking about the struggles of women in today's world and in previous worlds because she directed Lady Bird and Little Women. Now, I did see Little Women, and there are a lot of similarities between the messaging in Little Women, even some of the monologues, and the messaging in Barbie. And it seems like the shared message between these two movies is specifically that women face a lot of expectations and pressures from society that are very difficult to balance and very difficult to overcome and have a satisfactory life. And more importantly, those pressures come from different directions, not just from men, but also from other women. And that the proper solution to that is to be more open to celebrating the life of a woman instead of celebrating the ideal life of a woman or the ideal extraordinary life of a woman. Because what Barbie really drives home is that you don't have to be extraordinary to have a good life. You don't have to be extra special or become a CEO. There are many ways that you can have a fulfilling life without having to be so much better than anyone else. In your opinion piece, you said, quote, The patriarchy harms men and women in different ways. Can you explain what you meant by this? Absolutely. That is probably one of the more controversial lines in the opinions piece because people have different views towards the patriarchy. 
For me, the patriarchy is not identical to the idea of a male having a leadership role. It's more so this societal idea that women should not lead. And it's kind of emerged, especially in the last 200 years in American society, where there has for a long time been this sense that women are not fit for leadership or even to go so far as to say like biologically or like women are are wired differently so they just don't have the same capabilities. And I believe that is harmful to men and women because on the women's side, of course, you're limiting the opportunities that women do have to lead. Even though for many people who claim to be Christian, we have many examples of successful female leadership. You can think to Deborah, of course, or even deaconesses lined lined out in uh, the New Testament as well. But on the men's side, what it allows is a complacency that you have leadership qualities just in the fact that you are a man. In a way, it's almost limiting your opportunity to improve yourself because what it's telling you is you are enough in yourself without forcing you to look at yourself in a critical way, without realizing that just because you're a man doesn't mean that you understand it all. Just because you're a man doesn't mean you are naturally a leader. You still have things you have to fix about yourself because we all have that potential to be a leader, but there's so much we have to grow to become a good leader. So in your piece, you also say that one of the many struggles that women face is the stigma against homemaking. And you say that the movie condemns that stigma. How does the movie do that? There's a long monologue in the middle of the movie. And I will say, one of the weaknesses of the movie is that it loves to throw in some monologues. It does kind of break up the pace of the story. The mother character in the movie goes on a long rant, really, about how women can't be too too skinny or too big or anything like that. And inside of that rant, she also mentions that you can't be... That, that you should care about kids, but you can't just be a homemaker. You can't just be a mother. There's also a sense that the pressure is not just to be successful. The pressure is also to not tie yourself down at home. And the movie even explicitly says that you can't be just ordinary, that there's this sense, especially even from the feminist side, that women have to be especially successful, that women have to seek out roles like CEO and whatnot, because how else will they balance out gender disparities in those roles? There's not a sense that you're also allowed to have other roles that you might find more fulfilling. What would you say to the people who went to the Barbie movie kind of expecting a lighthearted, fun movie that made them reminiscent of their childhood? Because for me personally, I was super excited to see the Barbie movie because I wanted to kind of unlock some of those childhood memories. Um, I grew up in a household with all sisters and we were obsessed with Barbie. And so I was super excited to see kind of like a live action Barbie movie because it would be in a way bringing my childhood to life. And instead I kind of like felt like I received a lecture. And even though I, I didn't necessarily disagree with the message of the movie i still kind of wanted something more fun and lighthearted. so what would you say to someone who who has that take i completely understand people who came in with a different conception of what the movie would look like because i actually grew up in a similar way all my closest siblings are sisters and i watched many barbie movies growing up what was your favorite barbie movie the 12 dancing princesses uh, mine was the princess and the popper princess and the popper is a good one i thought it was better than princess and the pop star I think that's definitely true. Okay, but, but did you ever watch Barbie Life in the Dream House? I did watch Barbie Life in the Dream House. I know every word to the, what do you call it, like the intro song, the theme the song? The intro song does live rent-free in my head too often. <laughs> Glad to hear that. Okay, but... 
But going into the movie with those movies in mind does definitely impact the experience because those Barbie movies have a very different style of filmmaking from this one. Yeah. And I can understand why a lot of mothers came in bringing kids thinking that, okay, this is just going to be a live action version of those classic Barbie movies. I would have hopes that the marketing was clearer on the fact that this is an adult-oriented movie. Obviously, it does have a PG-13 movie, but these days there are so many movies oriented towards kids that have the PG-13 rating that doesn't mean as much. But I think I understand that people came in with the wrong conception, but I would hope that the movie is still entertaining even if you were hoping for more of like a nostalgic trip back to childhood. Because let's not forget, there are a lot of great references all throughout to some of the most vintage Barbies. All the outfits are from authentic Barbie editions. All the different characters are legitimate to Barbie. I think of like, especially the lavender Ken that they brought in, who was a real Ken that actually was thrown off the production line because the gay community really liked it. And also, let's not forget, they do break up the message with some fun things, too. Like yeah, a dance they do. sequence. That mm-hmm. one was important. And other ways that kind of help the story be more than just a bunch of monologues. Like you mentioned, and I agree, this still does feel like you're getting preached at for a significant amount of the movie. I would have appreciated maybe some more dancing in there. But yeah. I think there's still enough for someone to love when they leave. And the reality is, for many of the women who watched it, at the very least, they left with the feeling that, I've gone through that. Finally, someone is saying what I've gone through. All right. Well, thank you, Nathan. Appreciate you coming on the show today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Collegian Week in Review. Today, we have a special guest host joining us. For this episode, we have Logan Washburn, the associate editor of the Collegian. Today, he will be interviewing political correspondent Micah Hart about the Republican presidential debate. So, Logan, I'll pass it off to you. Thanks, Maddie. It's great to be on. Um, So, Micah, I am interested in talking to you about the debate because you covered it in the Collegian. Um, The debate took place on August 23rd in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So we both watched the debate, but what stuck out to you the most about it? I think we saw a clear difference um, from what we've seen previously, especially in 2016. We saw a lot of different visions for how America moves forward. I think we saw really unique perspectives of people who are still loyal to Trump and people who are not loyal to Trump anymore, who either were or never were. And I think it really showed where our country could go, but also just the vast differences in the Republican Party. I think that struck me the most and how each of them performed. I mean, some people I thought would stand out like Tim Scott really didn't gain much traction, in my opinion, from the debate. So um, in terms of presidential candidates, there is definitely a divide between um, the the more Trump types, the, the new right, um, as some would call them, and the more establishment as, as they've been known. Um, I know that among students you spoke to about this, there was some surprise that some of the more establishment candidates um, were actually very outspoken and they brought some fire to the debate. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I think the most I heard from was Nikki Haley for the establishment and the new right was Vivek Ramaswamy. Um, One student, Josiah Jones, really emphasized those two as the winners of the night. Nikki Haley showing she has strong foreign policy experience as a diplomat, former diplomat, as UN ambassador. And Vivek Ramaswamy showing getting name recognition, getting out there and putting himself out there. And others I interviewed really said that Ramaswamy put himself out there again with Ramaswamy, um, 
there was some concern, though, from others like Charlie Burr and Emily Griffith that, you know, maybe he's just saying the right things. The Republican platitudes, as was said. Is there more to Ramaswamy? Going back to the establishment, though, Nikki Haley's foreign policy experience shined through um, from what I heard and also her abortion answer. Um, Vivian Turnbull, who's a junior here, really emphasized that Nikki Haley's stance on we need to find consensus that this is a human topic, that we need to make it more humane, we need to focus on that, and that you need 60 votes in the Senate to pass this, really resonated with her and made a lot of sense and may not have been the Republican answer, but was the honest answer. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, It's interesting to see the student responses because that's a small sample of how it plays with the people who are actually watching this debate. Mm -hmm. Um, So we mentioned that Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy um, were kind of the front runners. That was the general consensus among people you spoke to and in a lot of the headlines the following day. Um, So they actually clashed a bit over foreign policy. Um, Can you tell me about what that proved with each of the candidates? Well, I think it showed how foreign policy is just going to be a leading topic in 2024, but there also are really different directions a Republican Party could go, and we've talked about the new right and the establishment. The establishment wanting to support Ukraine, saying, Nikki Haley really emphasizing that a win for Russia is a win for China. Vivek Ramaswamy really saying we need to focus on the U.S., and there was this big moment where the two of them just went right at it, and Nikki Haley claimed that Vivek had no foreign policy experience, and it showed. And I think that 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 moment, those moments are going to really be something important for voters to look at. And I think they will also propel what we see the Republican Party moves towards, whether it is we stay with really a Trumpy, Trump-type party or it, we go back maybe to the Reagan years of Republicanism. So I think that that foreign policy part of the debate between those two, which really highlighted the night for both of them, is going to be a defining thing we see moving forward with those two candidates particularly, but also the rest of the candidates. Absolutely. Um, I noticed that it seemed like a microcosm of what's going on with the Republican Party. You kind of had the two sides clashing in that moment with these really outspoken characters. In terms of foreign policy, do you think that voters are caring more about that because of the Ukraine crisis and kind of shying away from the possibility of war just due to the current polls? It seems like Ramaswamy is standing out Um, as maybe third or even second to Donald Trump. Yeah, I think that it matters. When we're looking at the polls, too, specifically with Ramaswamy, I think why people are so attracted to him is he's a younger guy. He brings similar ideas that Trump has, but he's younger, a fresh face for the party. And that's what people liked about Trump in 2016 was he was an outsider. He was somebody who was not part of the establishment. And I think that that is resonated, resonating. And, you know, I don't know how foreign policy lines up there, but I do see in certain states we're seeing him move up in the polls as we are also seeing people like Nikki Haley move up in the polls. Governor DeSantis is still where he's been at number two. So I think it I think it does show that foreign policy does matter, but I do think also that Trump has a heavy hand on this primary and is not going away anytime soon. Absolutely. So um, I know that junior Emily Griffith thought that if Trump keeps playing wild cards and doing things like abstaining from the debate, um, that he may um, risk his chance at the nomination. Um, how do you think it's going to go going forward? Do you think that he might end up trying to make some of the debates? How do you think it's going to play among voters? Yeah, I think Trump should have been at the first debate. I think that voters deserve to see who's running for office. And I mean, 
that's what matters. People deserve to see who they have to decide from. And if you can't show up to debate, how can you lead a country? You have to know the people. You need to be speaking to the people. I think that's an important thing. I'd love to see him there because I think it would, not only would it be interesting because he always is really funny to watch at debates because he has good one-liners, but also it would show where his policies stand because I think he's focusing on different issues going into this election. There are different things our country is going through. Our economy is in shambles. That's something he can focus on. He can bring expertise to. So I think for the voters' sake, he needs to get out there. I think polls will continue to show that that matters as well. Absolutely. Well, it'll be interesting to see how these dynamics play out um, in the Republican Party going forward. But the first debate was a great way to start it off. So thanks for speaking with me about this, Micah. I appreciate your time. You have been listening to the Collegian Weekend Review on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. We're your hosts, Lauren Scott and Maddie Welsh. You can find the Collegian online at hillsdalecollegian.com or on Instagram at hillsdalecollegian. You can also find previous episodes of the Collegian Weekend Review online at cwir.transistor.fm. Once again, you've been listening to the Collegian Weekend Review on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. See you next week.